Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Arik Tola, a researcher and trainer at Bellingcat. Bellingcat is an investigative journalism website focused on fact-checking and open-source intelligence. Arik specializes in Eastern Europe and Eurasia research and was part of the team that found the real identities of the Russian agents behind the Salisbury poisonings of Sergei and Yulia Skirpel. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO, Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Eric, how are you? Good, good. Thank you for coming on. So you work for Bellingcat, Mm -hmm. very interesting organization, obviously Mm -hmm. doing some really important investigative work. What's it like working there? Mm -hmm. Well, it's pretty great. I I work from home. Um, Pretty much all of us work from wherever we live, though we also have an office at The Hague um, in the Netherlands. But most of us work from home. We do digital research into whatever it is we're interested in. My pet topics are mostly in Ukraine and Russia and a little bit in the U.S. as well. But we have people who work on topics like the war in Syria, Libya, Yemen, um, chemical attacks here, there, and everywhere, disinformation, environmental research, all sorts of other stuff. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, And also a time where I'm personally really struggling with mainstream media, Mm -hmm. struggling for truth and news. It feels like this is the work Bellingcat's doing is very important. Mm -hmm. Yes, (laughs) well, I hope so, yeah. So a lot of the stuff we do um, intersects with what you would see in, I guess, mainstream media, but um, we take a little bit different approach in that we, kind of the central ethos, I guess, of the site is that we, try to have as much transparency and, I don't know, legwork involved in our investigations as you can imagine. So while, you know, if you're reading something in BBC or the New York Times or whatever, you may just get a, you know, 300 article or 500 word article that just has to lead the, you know, the nut and the, in the conclusion, right? And that's about it. But we try to have as much detail, excruciating detail a lot of times in our investigations of going through exactly you know, what we found, every piece of evidence we could dredge up on topic A, B, or Z. Um, going through false leads, loose threads, investigative process, who else has done this stuff, this, that, and the other thing. So we just try to be exhaustive as possible, and our stuff is open source by definition, meaning everything that we, all the sources that we use in our investigations are accessible to um, anyone with an internet connection, and sometimes a bit of a wallet if you get through a paywall or um, things like that. But you don't have to rely on advertising and sponsors in a way that Um, the mainstream media tends to. Yeah, we have a different funding model. So, you know, New York Times or whatever, you know, they mostly work through advertising, right? 
we have a kind of a handful of things. So we do get some grants and things like that. So maybe grants from places like, you know, OSF, big bad Soros and whatever, maybe 30 to 40% or so of our budget. But the rest we make up in either donations because we have a Patreon, like half of, seems like half the websites on the internet <laughs> or podcasts have a Patreon nowadays. And also we, um, the thing that's really unusual about our funding models, we get half or over half of our funding through paid workshops that we run for mostly for journalists and also for NGO researchers, human rights advocates, things like that, to reteach people um, in five-day workshops how to do very, very, very in-depth digital research. We have a mix of participants from um, private organizations, newspapers, others, and we teach them over a week how to exhaust the Internet as much as you can on researching different topics, so how to go through, um, analyze material on social media, YouTube, you know, how do you find and collect um, and verify visual materials, how do you satellite imagery in your research? How to use databases, flight tracking, naval tracking, all those things you can do through Google Earth or Chrome that you could use in kind of in complementing traditional investigative journalism. Is this as a uh, objective to try and improve the quality of investigative journalism and mm-hmm. improve the supply of journalists? Because, like I said, the moment, I, I, something I'm really kind of struggling with. I give you one example. I remember seeing a chemical attack in Syria, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I saw two sides of the story. Yeah. I saw a side that this was the Assad government, and mm-hmm. I saw another side that said this was a fake attack mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. propaganda. And I think somebody like myself or other people who maybe aren't aware of Bellingcat, they struggle to know what the mm-hmm. real truth is these days. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, with that, the, I mean, the whole Syrian thing is just a complete mess with, um, it's extremely emotionally charged from everyone. And it's, I mean, Syria is not my specialty. I'm, I'm with the big hodgepodge of Russia and Ukraine, which is equally politicized friend in, in its own way. But the Syria, I mean, chemical attack question is, it, 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 I can't even imagine it being a nightmare to approach from the outside and not knowing where to start because everything is, again, extremely you know, you have people who, you know, are either completely in the bag for Assad or completely want to go in there and, and murder him immediately and, you know, put in a so-called friendly government, right? So you have everyone doing that. And then when you try to find out, like, what actually happened on the ground about, you know, a bomb did drop from the sky, dropping, you know, there's a million of these chemical attacks. There's only a few and that get a lot of coverage, but they actually happen really, really frequently. It, it's, it's tough to know exactly what happened and what didn't. But usually by going through fairly basic um, investigative processes, you could collect as many materials as you can about it, you know, suss out what happened, what didn't. And there's a lot of places using really interesting techniques to do that. We do our collection through digital materials, satellite imagery analysis, things like that. But there's other places who use a little bit more scientific forensic approach to, you know, reconstruct the area through CAD models. And, of course, you have traditional journalists, New York Times, whatever, who will, you know, talk to people on the ground from, you know, people who say that it did or didn't happen or whatever. Um, out who's reliable. So, I mean, with all these things, it's it's a nightmare to walk in and figure out what happened. But hopefully, we, you know, with our research, we try to be as transparent as we can. If you don't agree with us, then that's fine. We still show all the primary materials, and you can find out where we screwed up if you think we did. All right. So, yeah. your focus, right, as you said, on Ukraine and Russia right now. Mm-hmm. So, what is the status between Ukraine and Russia in terms of the state of war at the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, the war is still going. It's cooled down a bit. I mean, 2014 and early. 2015 was kind of the height of it when it was just full-on, I mean, just not even hidden Russian involvement. Now it's a little more nuanced, more complex. So in the summer of 2014 and the early winter of 2015, it, I mean, Russia wasn't even hiding the, the, the war. They were sending soldiers from, you know, ethnic Baryat soldiers who were from the border area by Mongolia, you know, showing up with tanks in eastern Ukraine, and they didn't exactly look like the average, um, you know, Ukrainian. But now it's much, much more nuanced to where they have the Russian support for the 
Eastern Ukrainian separatist government, whatever you want to call them, is a little more nuanced and much more advisor roles, technical support. They, they, they send them like drone operators. People can do radar jamming, things like that, much more technical stuff that you don't have from the local idiots who took up guns down there. But I mean, obviously, there, there's still a war. You know, a Ukrainian soldier, separatist soldier dies about once, one or so every night or so by average. And there's still some civilians caught in the front lines, mostly um, the elderly and sick who are stuck in the front lines. But the war is mostly crystallized and it's or, um, settled into a state of just mortar fire back and forth every night and no actual movement of the front lines except for extremely minor positions being taken and lost. So the war itself is is still going, but at a very, very low intensity. And Russian support has gone from extremely obvious artillery attacks, tanks, all that stuff in 2014-15, and now it's down to just very relatively covert technical support, along with financial support and political support, of course. But what is what are they actually fighting over right now? What is the contentious <laughs> issues? Well, yeah, I guess that's a, that's a really good question. So the original uprising slash war, whatever you want to call it, it's, I'll get lynched either way depending on what word you use because people get very, very, very upset about word choice with this. And the lynch isn't the right word for this either. So the original conflict started in early 2014 after the Russian annexation of Crimea. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a combination of fomented artificial stuff from Russia and eastern Ukraine and also some genuine locals who were upset about um, the recent change in government in Ukraine. So there's a change of government in Ukraine in late in early 2014 after protests in central Kiev. The relatively pro Russian pro Russian government was kicked out Yanukovych, yeah. and the more Western friendly government um, came in replacing them. It's this kind of a seesaw in Ukraine back and forth, a corrupt Western versus a corrupt Russian back and forth. Like Moldova is the same way. It's just it's corrupt either way. It's just slightly okay. more corrupt on the Russian side. Um, and but the really thing it really really happened because there were promises made by the pro-Russian government of EU integration, and Ukrainians really wanted to have visa-free travel in Europe. They wanted work rights in Europe. They wanted integration with Europe because it's just I mean if you have a choice between integration with Russia and integration with the European Union, most everyone's picked the European Union. It's much nicer to go to. Paris and Brussels yep. and the work in Poland than Russia, on the other hand. And the promises were, weren't kept and they were they went back on their promises about EU integration and that's where the that's when the giant protests happened and the change of government. And then there was, um, and then Russia stepped in, annexed Crimea, and then there was the uprising in eastern Ukraine, which is a combination of some genuine unrest and um, dislike of the new government and also Russia sending in actual soldiers, advisors, security service, stuff like that, to um, fan the flames and increase their power exponentially. I seem to remember something to do with the gas prices as well. Wasn't Russia Mm -hmm. subsidizing gas prices for Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. So they were also heavily subsidizing. This is kind of one of the biggest levers that Russia has over Ukraine because they control much of the um, gas and energy input into Ukraine. And so, yeah, they they did part of the way to lure them away from EU integration was to provide heavier subsidized um, energy prices. So, you know, it was gas prices go down, heating goes down. Because obviously in Ukraine, it's very cold in the yep. winter and heating is very important. So that was one of the big carrots that Moscow offered um, for Yanukovych, who was the former ousted president, to turn away from EU integration for this. So, you know, it's it's just trading favors back and forth. I mean, EU is the same way. They would, you know, there's IMF tranches and stuff like that coming in. So it's, you know, they're getting subsidized either way, but the people were a little bit more favorable to the EU integration rather than the Russian integration. And that's why the exchange happened. And did Bellingcat research into what happened with MH17? 
Oh yeah, that's kind of the. So we start our site started in three days before MH17, which is conspiracy theories wow. we'll always point to. But it had been and the launch had been planned for months and months and months yes. before then. So that's how I got involved, and a lot of other people on the site got involved because we were doing a lot of um, investigations into the downing. So MH17 was downed on July 17th, 2014. Mm-hmm. This is about just right about at the height of the fiercest fighting during the war. And the shoot-down was, I mean, it was an accident. They never meant to shoot down a Malaysian airliner. They thought they were shooting down a, a Ukrainian jet or military cargo plane. They um, misidentified the plane, shot it down, and then tried to cover their tracks as fast as they could, though they didn't do a very good job at it. So, yeah, we've been doing research for five years. We're still researching different – there's only there's not many angles left to research, but we're still researching it the best we can. And so our early research on this was looking at all of the witness accounts, photos, videos, everything around – what happened in eastern Ukraine on that day, July 17th, 2014, looking at different military convoys moving around, troop movements, the internet, these, all these commanders in eastern Ukraine, you have all these kind of like tin-pot wannabe dictators who have like their own little units, little battalions of 20, 30 people at a time, and they all kind of very, very loosely aligned in eastern Ukraine. It's a combination of literal like Civil War reenactors, like Russian Civil War, not American Civil War, reenactors who like to dress up and play in the weekends, and then they got actual real men they played behind. <laughs> um, so it's it's extremely bizarre. One commander who used to be like a, a mall Santa, he used to dress up as a mall Santa, then he became a warlord. It goes on and on and on. So all these kind of would-be, you know, wannabes got actual men behind them, and because of that, they weren't like professional soldiers, commanders, whatever. They're just, you know, a lot of times like World War II history buffs or reenactors or whatever who got real guns and real men behind them. And because of that, they, were, they weren't they were very um, disciplined in either how they talked online or elsewhere about what was happening or in interviews because they loved to give interviews because they were very, very full of themselves a lot of times. So you have a bunch of really, really chatty warlords and war criminals, both online and in interviews they were giving nonstop. And so this is kind of a goldmine of all these materials that go through and research and piece together. And also because this is eastern Ukraine, there's very, very high digital literacy and internet penetration in the area. So there's dash cam videos, which you know, people always see those of like bears walking across the street in Russia or mm-hmm. whatever. These are all, these are in not every, but many cars in Ukraine and Russia for like insurance fraud purposes. You know, someone jumps, you see those videos like in China, people like jumping on your windshield and then like demanding money. It's kind of like that. They have, you know, dash cams to like have like, go against like insurance fraud and also when police pull you over to keep away from getting bribed or having to give bribes away. And so because of that, you have all these little spy cameras going all around the country. And with that, you have, you can really, um, if you look and look and look and look, you can piece these together and figure out troop movements, convoys, license plates for vehicles going by, then match them to owners and all this stuff. So these are the things that we were doing around MH17 because you have a million little spy cameras, people with smartphones, people with YouTube accounts, Instagram accounts who are posting what they're seeing throughout the day. And then we piece all that together to figure out what happened back on that day five years ago. And your conclusion thus far is? Yeah, so let me go back to the beginning, or semi-beginning. So at the time during the war, there was Ukraine had a really, really strong air advantage over the rebels or separatists or Russians or whatever you want to call them in eastern Ukraine. And by advantage, I mean they had planes and the others didn't. So but they were bombing bases, convoys, all sorts of stuff. And the separatists really wanted air power, air defense power. And so Russia sent them some, some like shoulder-mounted guns, a few like low-altitude missile systems, nothing too major, um, but they were still getting hit quite a bit. And so eventually they really wanted something that could actually scare Ukraine into like grounding their planes and not flying them over eastern Ukraine. 
And the solution for that was um, a book anti-aircraft system. So a book is a Soviet era. It's named after a tree. All their, I don't know why, but all their anti-aircraft systems are named after different trees. I don't know why. <laughs> so book is a type of tree in Russia. There's also a topol tree and a few others. So this um, book system was sent from Russia across the border clan, um, under nightfall and then got into Donetsk, which is the largest city in eastern Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, on the morning of the shootdown. And this was to deter Ukraine from shooting down or from attacking their positions. And two days prior, just for just an idea of what it was like at the time, two days before the shootdown, Ukraine tried to bomb a separatist military base. They missed and hit an apartment building, and it killed 12 or 13 civilians. So, like, at the time, they were bombing cities both precisely and imprecisely. They were killing civilians and also killing separatists and Russian forces. And so this book was meant to, like, deter further Ukrainian air attacks. And so this book system was like literally paraded through Eastern Ukraine. Like this wasn't like some super duper secret operation to get this missile system in. Like they had it on the most populated thoroughway in Donetsk, which is a you know city of over over a million people in Eastern Ukraine. And they had three or four vehicles in like the convoy, and they literally had sirens blaring and like clear the street. It's like a parade, like clear the street. This thing is coming through. Yeah, I mean, like they they were trying to say like, look what we have. Like we have this extremely powerful system. Stop, you know, leave us alone. Like leave us alone. Like let us, you know, have military movements. Don't leave us alone. Like we're peaceful people, but like you know, let us move our tanks through in position to to neuter the um, Ukrainian air superiority. And so they were literally parading this through sirens and stuff through the middle of of these large cities, which is why we have so many videos and photos and witness accounts, because people saw this thing and they're like, oh my God, you know, can you believe this? You know, there's a big green monster is moving through my city right now. And then they eventually deployed it in a field in the middle of nowhere in eastern Ukraine. And somebody from a nearby city, they were looking for, no one knows exactly what they were looking for, but people suspect they were waiting for either a Ukrainian fighter jet or a military cargo plane. And we, I mean, we have these, these are intercepted calls that are published by the official investigation, the Dutch investigation in May 17, because they had access to the phone lines. And the guy called in and said, you know, a little birdie is flying your way, which is code for a bir- like a plane, a little birdie. And then they said, okay, we're going. And then literally 45 seconds later, they launched a missile and shoot it down. They thought it was a Ukrainian plane. It wasn't. Once they got to the um, crash site, they were looking for the pilots. Whenever you shoot down a fighter jet, the pilots jump out. And then you look for the parachuted pilots or whatever. And they were looking and looking for a pilot. They, they were they were confused because they went to the passport. They saw these Malaysian passports and, you know, like vacation stuff everywhere. And they're like, what's, you know, they, they at first, their first reaction was that th- these were things that like the military cargo plane had like this stuff to trick people, I guess, <laughs> to like, you know, like it was secretly a spy plane. But then they realized, oh, wait, you know, we just made a really big mistake. And then they tried to cover up as fast as they could. But it, yeah, it, it was already done. But there's been no admission of guilt. There was, but then they took it back. Yeah. So they, I mean, immediately after the shootdown, they were posting on um, social media, like, you know, these are our skies. You know, we told you we'd shoot you down, and here you go. Leave us alone. And they well, were. Was that an admission of shooting down a plane or an admission of shooting down? Well, they said we just shot down a Ukrainian plane. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. They said we shot down the plane. We told you these are our skies. Don't, don't fly here. And then as soon as they realized, oh, wait, this wasn't a cargo plane. And they even posted pictures of, like, the debris falling from the mm-hmm. ground, you know. And so they said, you know, we did it. They reported even re- – you could still go into Russian state media reports that are still up for some reason up today about initial separatist claims of, like, victory. Of, like, we should, they all – whenever this happened, they would brag about it because it was like, you know, again, these are, like, little tin pot wannabe dictators who would, like, brag about what their unit did. And they, you know, they bragged about it. Then once they realized, they just kind of um, backtracked as fast as they fell over trying to backtrack then, yeah. Was – was the weapon 
you call it a sorry, a book a book yeah so i would imagine something like that would have to have properly trained people using yeah. it yeah and ideally you would have uh, an infrastructure mm-hmm. that also allows you to be aware of what's in, in the yes. sky so, so and that's I'm assuming the they, um I'm assuming the question they, yeah, yeah. They had half of it, right? So that's the big – that's where the the legal case into MH17 cracks is upon because this was – when it came over, when the this book system came over, it came over with a crew of Russian soldiers, like mm-hmm. actual enlisted Russian servicemen to come with this because there's a history of when Russians send equipment over to eastern Ukraine – if it's old Soviet era, like seventies, eighties, crappy old tanks, they just send it over. Like you know, return if you want. Who cares? It's a gift. You know, this is like it's like getting rid of old equipment that they're not going to be using anyways, right? So they sent their old beat down stuff. And a lot of times, even when you look at like weapon caches in um, Russia, the ones that get sent over to Eastern Ukraine are the ones that are, like have a damaged wheel or you know the old crappy ones. They clear that, clear them out. So this is like it's like going to Goodwill in the U.S. of like donating your stuff. <laughs> But when they sent really advanced stuff, so like the new like uh, the new high tech tanks that were made in the last like ten, fifteen years, the, the stuff they actually want back, they have a crew with them. They don't send them just as a gift. They send them with a Russian crew, with the expectation they're going to return. So they send them for specific operations, specific battles, specific tasks, and then return them. And this book was sent with a Russian crew. So that's the the crux of the Dutch invest, criminal investigation MH17 is how high does the responsibility go for this because they clearly made a mistake and they were operating under stress conditions because there is kind of there are fail safes within a book system to override for friendly you know a friendly plane versus not the altitude the speed all that stuff and an operator would theoretically see not a military plane traveling at this height and this speed which matches that of a civilian plane but you also have to think about what the person's, you know, imagine you're some 24-year-old Russian soldier. You've never, like, seen actual fighting. You weren't old enough for Chechnya, let alone Afghanistan. You know, two days prior, there was a bombing, and just about two or three kilometers from the launch site was where 12, 13 Ukrainian civilians were killed. Which you're going to be upset about. Which, I don't, well, I don't know if they have a personal investment in those people, but they're panicked. They're, yeah. they're, they're fearful, right? They're, yeah. they're worried. So you can imagine that with different Ukrainian air attacks recently, you, you don't have a lot of combat experience. You're like a, maybe just a petty officer, whatever. You're just going to, yes, 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 yes. You know, imagine you're trying to open up or close. You know, you're tr- you have a Word draft or Chrome tabs. You try to close it. He's like, yes, 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 right? You get to do all the overrides. So you, just, you override, yes, fire, please, don't kill me, fighter jet. Because when these systems are turned on and you run the radar, they can be detected, right? So if you run radar, therefore, you could detect the radar back. So they're probably just trying to fire as fast as they can because they were told that this is a fighter jet or a military plane coming towards you. So the question for the Dutch investigation around criminal liability is the Russians sent a crew, they sent the men to operate it, but they clearly did not send with proper safety procedures, you know, support, um, and they didn't use it. I mean, it's impossible to use this responsibly because it's a giant (laughs) weapon of war, right? But within the realms of atrocities and war crimes, it was not used within the realm of, I don't know, responsible use for a giant monster, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so... Just say they lose the lawsuit. Yeah, but it, what actually happens? Happen. Nothing I was happens. Say, nothing happens I mean, like it's yeah. I mean, like that's like it's it's fun to go through, but not fun. But it's you know it's interesting to go through all the different possibilities and the culpability and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Russia could be hit with you know a two billion dollar lawsuit from the victims of the family. There are multiple court cases that right now at the EU Court of Human Rights and with the U.S. as well. 
I mean, they'll, I mean, obviously they're never going to pay anything or admit guilt. Maybe in 20 years they'll admit guilt, right, just to get this lawsuit off their back yeah. or to get, like, some sanctions reduced or something like that. But it would take a, I don't know, like a coup. <laughs> it would have to take some tremendous shift in structural changes in Russia for them to ever admit culpability or to pay out know, restitutions or to anything. So they'll just, I mean, they'll just withdraw from any institutions that try to punish them. So, you know, if the, you know, Interpol or whatever tries to get them, they'll just pull out of whatever these institutions are just to avoid repercussions. So, I mean, honestly, and, you know, what are they going to do? Kick them out? You can't kick them out of the UN, right? What are you going to do, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's one of the interesting things about Russia as a casual observer. It seems like they don't admit guilt to anything. Like, everything is denied. I mean, why would they? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, one of the very interesting things was, I, I'm assuming you've watched the Chernobyl season, series. I need to. I've, I have them pirated, but I haven't watched oh. it. I need, I really, you really, I've, I've read the Alexeyevna, um, Alexeyevich, the book the, that it's based off of, The Voices from Chernobyl. So I've read the book that it's loosely based off of, but I haven't read the, or watched the movie yet. Or well, the I mean, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but in the last episode, well, there, is a, there is a moment where... It, it melts down, right? No. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So following the meltdown, one of the um, whistleblowers, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was given a very kind of, let's say, uh, warning, talking mm-hmm. to... It's from a... I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember who it was, but it was very much like a nationalist speech mm-hmm. that you protect the motherland. And yeah, you yeah, kind of yeah. get the motherland. Mm-hmm. And that, the thing about Russia is, seems to still exist. It feels to me like, um, again, as a casual observer, you'll know more about this, but it seems to me that during the Gorbachev era mm-hmm. that the, the Russia was embracing the West and with following Yeltsin now Putin mm-hmm. it's gone come backwards what's come, what's happened there you, you I mean, know a lot more yeah, than me it's complicated but yeah so with Gorbachev I mean most Russians I'm not all Russians but many Russians look back Gorbachev as like this huge embarrassment Yeltsin I mean Yeltsin even times a million because yeah. he was you know what he was giving drunken speeches in public and falling over himself and whatever but I mean Gorbachev is often looked at as either um, someone who's you know depending on who you ask either someone who just sold out you know maybe he was a secret American spy the whole time or he sold out or he or the the most generous interpretation. He was an idealist who just had, ba- you know, like maybe a Jimmy Carter, how we think of Jimmy Carter in the U.S. Like, you mm-hmm. know, he had a lot of good ideas and maybe he was a nice guy, but he just he just wasn't practical. So, I mean, yeah, Gorbachev is a pretty negative <laughs> legacy. But with Putin, I mean, you know, obviously he is, I guess, yeah, kind of pushed back against international norms and whatever you want to say after, after 2013. But, I mean, you have to, again, if you're the average Russian, life was horrible in the 90s. I mean, you had people being, just, you know, people were literally being paid in toilet paper at some jobs because the currency was worthless. Mm-hmm. Or they were paid in good and commodities because, you know, the ruble wasn't worth anything. Um, and then Putin came in and, you know, for right, whether or not he actually did do things to improve the economy for, or if it was just the good luck of oil prices rising, which is probably more true than not, life became manageable and, you know, better, you know, as good as it was in the Soviet 70s or whatever. I mean, there were, you know, the social safety net was destroyed and all, all sorts of other, you know, basic social services were gutted compared to before, thanks to the 90s often. But for the average Russian, there is actually a Russian middle class as small as it is now. You know, people actually have opportunities to have a better life now when before you had to be a gangster or or go to Poland to have any sort of prosperity for you or your family. So, I mean, with Putin, yeah, he's he's definitely turned against, you know, international norms in the West and the EU and all that stuff. But for the average Russian, I mean, foreign policy isn't as important as your domestic situation. So even though, you know, we say, you know, Putin bad, whatever, yes, obviously he's done all sorts of horrible things, but from the perspective of the average Russian and why he still maintains relatively high popularity, life's better now than it was in the 90s, though still there, you know, Russia still has, I think, 
yesterday or the day before, some stat came out that Russia now has the greatest wealth inequality. They passed us in China, us in China, U.S. and China were the tops. Now Russia beat us in wealth inequality. But still, if you're the average person living and you know working class person in Moscow or Petersburg or whatever, life's much better now than it was in you know ninety two, ninety three. You know. But is it genuine? Because mm-hmm. why would Putin fear democratic elections? Well, I mean, it, it, it's complicated. So, like, he, he, if he actually had a completely free and fair election, 1,000% completely transparent, whatever, he'd still win, and probably yeah. by a pretty big margin, too. Um, but the uh, issue isn't so much by him in the presidential level. It's more on the governor, state, local level, to where United Russia, which is his, his political party, uh, or I think they renamed it, but United Russia is what everyone knows it as, is not very popular all over. And, you know, it's kind of the, the Russian model of the boyars and the sorry, like the, the figurehead is popular, but the guy actually running the stuff on the nitty gritty local levels are very, very unpopular. So free and fair elections, would he'd still do fine. He'd still win every election probably, but he would not have complete superiority in the Duma and the um, upper chamber of the parliament. And he wouldn't have complete and utter utter power through the all the governors because you they have um they don't they don't vote in Russia you don't vote directly for your governor it's right. a, you know it's assigned top down so on, on a kind of a local state or I guess oblast level in Russia he wouldn't have the complete and utter power and also of course you know he if he does actually lo- genuinely lose popularity and you know someone comes up to gain power you know he has he has measures in place to stay in power no matter what too. So I think that the free and fair election thing, like I think it's just, he's done just because that's his mindset. You know, you do it not because you necessarily have to do it, but just like, that's just what you do. And that's what people before you have done. Cause Yeltsin fixed the election just like he did. And we helped him with that as well. Um, we definitely helped Yeltsin fix the 96 election. Um, but well, um, is, yeah. so isn't there a certain amount of hypocrisy there with the recent accusations of Russians yeah, sure. meddling in? How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? Do you ever feel like, well, come on? Well, I mean, a- obviously, you know, U.S. has meddled in all sorts of elections and, yeah. and things all over, and sp- including in Russia with Yeltsin specifically. Um, sorts. I mean, meddling is only the least of what <laughs> we've done. If you look at Chile and other places, yeah. but again, two rights, you know, two wrongs will make a right or whatever. So. With the Russian interference in Russian election, like you know, obviously there's the whole bots and troll thing. I just don't even pay attention to that. That's not consequential at all. But you know, if if we found out that you know an American hackers, I don't know, hacked the entire private inbox of Putin's you know chief, you know Kremlin aide, and then put and then published the entire inbox on you know some USAID or whatever site, then people would rightly be angry that the U.S. was meddling in Russian society and life or whatever, which is exactly what Russia did, you know, with us. So, you know, yeah, obviously there's hypocrisy, but, you know, just because America, you know, invades countries um, unilaterally and commits human rights abuses and all that stuff doesn't mean we can't criticize Russia for doing the same thing. So, I mean, yeah, uh, obviously we've done, we've done election meddling and far worse, but just because we've done it doesn't mean everyone else is immune to criticism. Yeah. And yeah. What's the state of freedom and human rights in Russia at the moment now? Is there still a clampdown on gay communities? Mm-hmm. What, what's, go- what's going on right now? It really depends on who you are and where you live. Okay. Um, so if you are in Chechnya or Dagestan, then you have pretty much no human rights and you okay. could just be murdered at, or kidnapped at any point. So yes, if you're in Chechnya and Dagestan, it's like it's it's very it's like you're inside Arabia. Or uh, are they yeah. still a state of war? 
No, technically not. I mean, they still have guerrilla operations. Every once in a while, you'll have like some, you know, I don't know, guerrilla operation that that kill, you know, so-called terrorists or Islamists or whatever. So like, they're not in a state of war really, but they still have skirmishes and like rebels and all that stuff in the mountains, little pockets. But for the most part, no, they're. I mean, it's pretty relatively normal, as normal as a Saudi-style um, theocracy can can be. So Chechnya and Dagestan are their own. Like, they're technically part of Russia, like legally and politically, but they operate under their own completely different rail sets. The rest of Russia, again, it depends on where you are. If you are a journalist or a um, gay man or woman in, out in the oblast, out in the regions, out in the middle of nowhere, you could just be kidnapped and murdered and nothing may ever happen. You may There may be some minor little protests and stuff in your favor, but that may just be it, just because you have little local warlords out there doing whatever they want. If you're in Moscow and Petersburg and you're a journalist, you're relatively protected. You're relatively – I guess relatively is a very – doing a lot of work here. But you're relatively okay if you're like a private oppositional journalist in Moscow or Petersburg. There are exceptions. If you cross Kadyrov, you know, leader of Chechnya, you may just get shot um, on a bridge. When walking across the bridge, you're leaving your apartment, which just happens. Whenever we talk about journalists being killed in Russia, it's almost always Kadyrov, the, the Chechen warlord who's killing people. Putin doesn't really kill journalists. It's mostly um, Kadyrov. Or if you cross um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is like the infamous, you know, Putin's chef, everyone calls him, but he's much more than that. He runs his own private military company, Wagner, which everyone knows about, and also runs, you know, he runs a so-called troll factory and all. He has, he does all the dirty stuff. He's also targeted, tried to hack journalists, tried to have them attacked, beaten up, and their credible accusations, he had some Russian journalists killed in Central African Republic as well. So the Russian government won't just walk up and shoot you if you're gay or a journalist but kind of some rabid dogs who are under the protection of the Kremlin, Kadyrov, Prigozhin, and some like ultranationalist groups, they may, and they may get away with it. Okay, well, (laughs) (laughs) see, I wasn't aware of that. So my assumption of, because I have read about journalists being murdered in Moscow, Mm -hmm. it has Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah, yeah, they've shot down in broad daylight, yeah. Yeah. So my assumption was this was uh, the... Putin government. Not really. No. It's not worth the headache if you're Putin. So if you're Putin, what he does is he he won't kill you if you're a journalist. What he'll do is he'll shut down your bank accounts. He'll audit your employer. He'll harass you whenever you cross the border, keep you held for eight hours at Border Patrol. He'll have you kicked out of your apartment. You know, he'll have tax, you know, he'll have you threatening jail for fake tax fraud. Those are the things that they do. It's much I mean, it's not subtle, but it's more subtle than a bullet in the head, right? What about international journalists? You're you're fine. If you're an international – if you're like an AP journalist or New York Times journalist working in Moscow, you won't be touched. You may be – you'll be monitored. You'll may be surveilled. You may have your phones tapped. You know, those things may happen, but you'll never be like – no government official is going to like attack you. I think some of the worst things that have ha- – I mean, again, you have the Kadira factor or the Prigozhin factor. Maybe they'll have some thugs, you know, rough you up or whatever. Um, but if you're like a New York correspondent, New York Times correspondent, and or BBC correspondent in Moscow, you're never. I mean, the government's not going to have you killed. The worst they'll do is maybe they'll have, again, they'll surveil you, watch you, maybe put some like nasty materials about you, uh, you know, record you secretly in your apartment. They'll do those kind of things, maybe. But also just you know deny a visa for you, kick you out of the country. But they aren't. You know, again, you're not going to be killed. It's a lot of stuff. I mean, we do this I mean, again, not to the equivalency, but the U.S. does similar things to some journalists as well. Um, some Iranian and Cuban journalists stuff in the U.S. So I mean, it's not Russia is one of many countries that we don't do to the same level as Russia, obviously. But um, this is common practice with you know dictatorships all over. Okay, yeah. right. Let's uh, let's talk about the work you're most well known for recently. You've mm-hmm. done a lot of research into. The chemical attacks, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. what happened in the UK. Um, oh, yeah, the Skripal stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
Again, a very, very weird. Really, really very weird. Very bold yeah. and brave, mm-hmm. though, as yeah. well. But it goes back to Lipinchenko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Litvinenko. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the first time, mm-hmm. right, that I remember. And yeah, it's the... very bold and brave to go on to, uh, to another country and start assassinating <laughs> people. Yeah, yeah, with polonium sometimes, too. Yeah, right? yeah I mean, yeah. so... Did your research start with then? No, no, no. We didn't exist back then. You yeah. didn't so exist. Scrape, yeah, 2014 is when we started. Yeah. But did yeah. you do any back work on that? Or you just no, it's that? too old. Too I mean, old. It's, okay. it's done. I mean, it's the inquiry's done all that. But, I mean, yeah, this is, you know, I talked earlier about how, you know, Putin won't go and kill journalists, right? Maybe local governors, maybe local police, maybe, you know, Chechen warlords, maybe private businessmen will, but Putin's government won't, doesn't like murder jur- Russian journalists. But he will kill you if you're a former spy. So that's the thing is, I mean, because you're a traitor. Yeah, true. I mean, like, I don't want to do some. I, you know, my least favorite type of Russia talk is people who try to psychoanalyze Putin and say he's a KGB, blah blah blah, whatever. But I mean, this is one case when yes, he is a former KGB officer and he did serve in security services, and so he does actually have a very personal feeling towards turncoat spies, right? Okay. And so the most brazen actions have been against turncoat spies. Skripal, obviously, and Litvinenko back in, what was like 2004, 2003? Yeah. yeah, a while ago, yeah. Okay, so the basis of the research, where did you start? Mm-hmm. What, sure. You know, what, you know, what are your goals with the research uh-huh. on this? So the Skripal stuff, I mean, very, very basic what happened this with Skripal. So a guy named Sergei Skripal and his daughter were both poisoned in Salisbury in the UK. He yep. was a former spy, turncoat. He was on a spy exchange. Now he's back in the UK. And supposedly, no one really knows for sure, but supposedly was possibly helping some EU and UK government stuff about Russia. So there was, there's all these rumors. I have no idea if they're true. If he was like involved somehow in the Steele dossier, you know, okay. all these shady things. So there's some people say that the Scrape Hall thing was done because of current actions, but whether or not he is, you know, a former spy living in the UK. And he was poisoned with this very, very, very exotic Soviet-era chemical, like um, biological agent. And he did not die. His daughter did not die. But a woman named Don Sturgis did die because mm-hmm. the vessel they used to deliver this like was a like perfume. a perfume bottle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then some guy found it in the trash and gave it to his girlfriend. And <laughs> what a yeah. gift! Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Um, and she did die. And that yeah. was an that was an accidental <laughs> thing. And the two guys who carried out the attacker. This is this is when it gets really really weird. He said they were on holiday. They yeah. So it's two guys. They they traveled under the names um, Ruslan Bashirov and Alexander Petrov. These two Russian guys, and they traveled saying that they were sports nutrition salesmen who were on holiday to visit the Salisbury Cathedral. Okay, yeah. So these two Russian guys who travel. A common destination for people going to the UK sure, as well. Sure, sure. I mean, the Salisbury Cathedral, I mean, it's very pretty. It's in that one famous painting. I can't remember who painted it, but, you know, it's famous. But they they came in, and they said that they arrived the train. They took a train from London up to Salisbury, and they said – the snow was so, you know, so high in the ground, we, you know, we turned back, you know, we walked around and we turned back because we couldn't make it to the cathedral. Though from the train station in Salisbury, when they arrived, you can actually see the cathedral in the background. So they walked the opposite way <laughs> to Skripal's apartment. We know this because there's surveillance footage on the uh, that the UK police have released. And they kind of walked towards Skripal's house. There's no video of it happening, but they then used this perfume bottle like the spray in the doorknob or something, this chemical agent, and they went home. So that's... Um, and then the UK authorities said, you know, these are the two guys. It's this guy um, Petrov and this guy Bashirov. They put out their passport photos. And then things got really, really weird when Margarita Simonyan, who's the head of RT, the you know Russia Today program, she interviewed these two men, which is how we got the story about this cathedral and everything. 
And they, I see in the interview, it's, it's so bizarre. Weird. It's, it's very so bizarre. Weird. They talked about how they wanted to see like, the famous 143 meter spire or whatever, right? It seemed like they were kind of like trolling a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Like it was like knew that this wasn't believable. And the thing that makes it really weird is Russia, like, again, no one knows. Some people think this is like punishment because they screwed up this operation, but they made them seem like they were gay together. Like they, they, they stayed in a small, like little uh, hotel room together and they definitely like insinuated they were like partners. They never actually outright said it, which is, again, so then that's, that was a story up to a certain point. But you've obviously researched and these then, guys. Yes, yeah, so and then that's where we come in. So then we were digging into these guys, and we used a bunch of mostly leaked databases because in Russia has this very, very bizarre culture of leaking personal information everywhere. So if you want to know about someone's, you know, like, I don't know, someone's DMV record or something like that, you can't just go and find some leaked database for the, I don't know, the state of New York's DMV database. You can't, you just can't do it, right? But in Russia, you can. There's like these little street kiosks all over Moscow. Where you can buy, like buy USB drives with like you know here's the registration, the car registration data from 2013 of every one of the Moscow oblasts, which is like you know 10 million people or whatever. And these can just be downloaded on torrents or whatever online. So we have this gigantic repository of these, including airline tickets and vehicle registrations and residential databases and criminal offenses and speeding tickets. You know, everything you can imagine is online somewhere or another. Some of these are sold online for like you know spend twenty bucks in Bitcoin, and they'll you know then you'll get it, or maybe you just download it on a torrent or whatever. So we're digging through some of these databases into this, and we figured out some ways to figure out who these guys really are because Petrov and Bashirov is, are their names, but they had their identities issued their identities did not exist before like 20 like 16 or 17 so like these two men were more or less born like a year before the screwball poisonings which is kind of weird because you think that russia is a place of bureaucracy of paper trails it's kind of weird because everyone in russia when you turn like 16 or 18 or whatever you get a it's called the national passport it's like a national id card more or less and they had their national id cards or passports issued to them for the first time in their like 40s which is very strange (laughs) So we started searching, we kind of had a hypothesis that like, well, you know, maybe if we keep searching some of the details and their information, we can find out their real identities. And we did, and we searched and searched and searched and looked for airline tickets and all this other stuff for these like databases. And we eventually found out that their real names are Anatoly Chapiga, that's the Bashira guy. He's the one with the little goatee if you've ever seen the interview. And the other guy's name is Alexander Mishkin, who is a, um, the kind of guy, kind of the buzz cut, the other guy. And we found them for a lot of ways, but one way is, for example, with Mishkin, his real his real name's Alexander. I can't remember his patronymic Mishkin, and for his fake identity was Alexander Petrov. He uses the same first name, the same patronymic. Because in Russia, your middle name is patronymic, which is your dad's name plus Ovich, Yevich, or if you're a girl, Ovna or Yevna, and the same birth date in the same also home city. So if you were to just search these public, again, not public because they've been leaked, databases of everyone named this first name, patronymic, mm-hmm. on this birth date from this town, he was the only guy. And he used, when, they get, when he used this fake identity, because the GRU, it's, he turns out these guys are GRU agents, which are Russian military intelligence, like CIA kind of. They, their fake identities were issued to them because a lot of times whenever these officers work, they don't travel under their birth names. They get fake identities. They got, they use their real first name, their real middle name, and their real birth date. And a lot of times their last name is just very slightly different. Not these guys, their names are different. But sometimes they only change one or two letters because if you get asked, you'll like naturally won't slip up. You'll remember your real name is. And so you can just reverse search these and find who they are, then find their photos, compare them, and you can find... And then we've, we worked with a Russian investigative outlet that actually sent people to the home village of these guys where they're actually from and asked people, like, do you know, do you have a picture? Like, you know who this guy is? Like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. I heard he joined the military. You know, I heard he's a spy now, whatever. So you found them. We found them, yeah. And also, uh, a couple weeks ago, we 
where because the New York Times published a story recently about the guy who this guy named Avaryanov, his last name is Avaryanov, who commands the GR unit who did the script. So he's the boss of the guys doing all these crazy things in Europe, the GRU operation in um in um, Salisbury with the screw Paul poisoning and also like there's an attempted coup in Montenegro and there's an assass- attempted assassination of Bulgaria and all sorts of crazy stuff and the boss of all these guys so like the big boss who's in charge of this jury unit a guy named Andrei Avaryanov we found we were looking through his like we were stalking him more or less him and his family and his daughter had a big posh huge wedding in Moscow he like a gigantic very like you know, hipster um, wedding of like, you know, um, I don't know what's the mason jars, and, yeah. you know, and like the same, like, you know, it was like those like hanging light bulbs and, you know, very know, like, yeah, yeah. yeah hipster cart starter kit, like cafe looks like. <laughs> and because it's a very like Instagram friendly wedding and there were tons and tons and tons of photos and videos and everything of this wedding. And this wedding took place a, a, a year before the Scrape Hall poisonings. And we w- watched, they had, they had a videographer who did like a little like two and a half minute like movie about their wedding with like music over it. And, and they had a wedding photographer and all that stuff. And of course, all the stuff's online because these wedding photographers, they're all work freelance. So they put their work up online, including from the wedding. And in, at this wedding for this GRU daughter's boss, we see Chapiga or Bashir of the guy who went to the RT interview sitting there front and center during the wedding. And his, this is the crazy part. His daughter was the ring bearer for the wedding too. So... Ruslan Bashirov slash Anatoly Shapiga, one of the Screw Paul poisoners who was interviewed in RT, he went. He was on the front row for the boss for his GRU boss's wedding, and his daughter was the ring bearer for the wedding. So, sports nutrition salesman who whose best friend apparently is a GRU commander in Moscow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, what's the response from Russia been to this? No, you're lying. Or oh, no just response? fake, fake, fake. fake, fake you know, it's fake. all online. What you can't trust what's online. Who cares? You know. Of course, then they reference other online reports saying that we're wrong because you know, look what this blogger said. They debunk Bellingcat. Look at while saying you can't believe any bloggers. Right. Kind of simultaneously. And then we get into the world of information warfare. Yeah. Yeah. So they they bring up other things like so. Why are you asking about Russia? You should be asking about the, why the UK police botched this operation. You know that kind of thing. So, I mean, obviously, it's just boring. Disinform- I mean, their responses are really lame for the most part, um, but it mostly just goes back to, like, we can't believe you because you're secretly the CIA or whatever. What, why that choice of agent for killing them? What, you know, is it easy, something easy to transport? Like, so why they use this chemical? Yeah. Because, <laughs> I have no idea. It, you know, if you, it didn't work either, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's just kind of like... I don't... I mean, like, I've heard a million theories and I don't know. But I've heard some people think that this was, like, a message, too to like other former spies or people thinking about becoming, you know, former or turncoat spies. Because but Lipinenko was it? Lipinenko was polonium. They used, they yeah. put, I mean, very, you know, very famously, they put polonium into his tea and he died from radiation poisoning, which is a very a bizarre way to kill someone, right? So why not, you know, use the like Bulgarian you know, poison tipped umbrella. You don't have to put polonium, you know, some exotic, you know, radioactive element into someone to slowly, slowly kill them. I mean, most well, no, people. It's a crap way to die, maybe. It's, yeah, that too. And also it's just, um, it's very, very, very bizarre and it won't, you'll know that it was like, this wasn't an accident. You know, this guy didn't, you know, this heart attack this guy had was not from natural causes. It was from, I mean, you know, polonium slash an um, exotic Soviet era, you know, chemical agent. Like, there's obviously <laughs> Russia did it, or someone. You know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, someone did this to frame Russia. So, like, there's no ambiguity. Ambiguity again, unless you're a conspiracy theorist about what the source of this was. This wasn't an accident. You don't cut his brake lines. You know, to make it look like it was an accident. It was obvious. Like, it was a message to other people. So that's, I mean, 
I mean, you would think they'd, they'd fit, pick a better poison to actually kill the guy and mm. not just injure him. But again, I have no idea why they did this. Or maybe they meant to kill him. And if this had been deployed properly, it definitely would have. But this, these two bumbling Salisbury tourists just couldn't put him to doorknob ride or something like that. But there's no repercussions, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's been some sanctions, but yeah, yeah exactly. And the sanctions are not that. I mean, they're most the sanctions that we've passed – by we, I mean the U.S. and EU have passed, and the Russia have been relatively mild. They, they're like you have some sectoral sanctions on like you know some oil and gas like that, but eh, you know people get around them. I mean compared to the sanctions that you have on like Iran and Venezuela, which are like hardcore, like really really hurt you know the um, citizens and population of that country and deprive them and all that stuff. All sorts of moral and ethical issues around those sanctions, but where the Russian ones, I mean they like hyper 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 focus on individuals and big like oil and gas and military companies. And you, the biggest repercussions on the, the average Russian are Russian counter sanctions. So like Russian counter sanctions will be like, we're no longer importing cheese from France, you know, pasta from Italy or whatever. And so you have to deal with the crappy, you know, Russian, <laughs> crappy Russian cheese and alternatives instead. So like the biggest repercussions for the population of Russia have been the self-punishment. The, the self-punishment, really, yeah. Because yeah. like the the idea of it is like, you know, look what they're doing to make, look what they're making us do to you, you know, kind of a thing. Is there a certain amount of Russia losing its power on the world stage and China becoming the second kind of superpower now? I'm, I guess. I'm not an international, I'm not an you IR person. So that, I mean, yeah. like, I guess, maybe, but I mean... I don't know. I'm, I don't. The whole like idea of like power ranking countries is kind of silly. Well, yeah. no, I, but I didn't know if it, this is like something Russia's doing to try and. I mean, be, I guess stay relevant on the world stage. Do you look into that, or you, you're more just about researching facts? I mean, yeah, I think that most. Whenever people talk about like, oh, someone so wants to be a bigger player, and all that, like, yeah, maybe I guess I don't. Know. I think that everyone's just kind of pursuing their own objectives that are like a little bit more focused. Okay. So like, you know, China, they aren't like Russia isn't like getting involved in Ukraine, thinking like this is our way to like you know become a big player in the world stage and people respect it. It's more like we specifically want goal X, Y, and Z. And if maybe if this gives us more international prestige, you're standing like that's fine or whatever. But really, it's about pursuing objective A, B. So I mean, I guess maybe there's some like big geopolitical planning meeting in the Kremlin talking about how we want to really make Forbes like top five countries list. Right. <laughs> but I think it's more about uh, achieving very specific objectives, not like this very broad destabilizing Europe or whatever. I think it's more like okay, we want to, you know, keep keep spies, you know, scared. You don't want to keep spies from betraying us. There's an unfriendly government in Montenegro. We have weapon whatever interest in there. We don't want that to happen. Like we want to keep this Bulgarian arms dealer from selling you know, weapons to, you know, Assad's enemies and Syria. It's like very specific things rather than these big grand geopolitical designs. Right, okay, yeah, because that was the next question I was going to ask you about. There was an alignment with Assad, there's an alignment mm-hmm. with Maduro, you know, but people mm-hmm. on the international stage who are not seen as particularly mm-hmm. well thought of uh, leaders of countries, what is that about? Is that is that any of that about trade and trying to mm-hmm. keep... Well, a lot of it is... Um, some of it is maybe you know long-standing relations. I mean, they have a very, very long-standing relationship with Syria, you know, going back quite a ways to the Soviet days. And also, I mean, from a very, very practical standpoint, they now have a very good warm water port in the Mediterranean with mm-hmm. Syria. With they don't have that naturally in Russia. But that's kind of been the entire struggle of Russian foreign policy. You know, going back to Peter the Great is looking for a warm water port, right? And they have, I mean, Crimea. They have one to the Black Sea. And they have one in Syria now, or they've had one in Syria, and they continue to have one there. So, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, again, focused, highlighted um, 
strategic strategic objectives. And also Syria. God, who isn't involved in Syria nowadays, right? I mean, everyone wants to have a place at the table, I suppose. And if Venezuela, I mean, the Venezuela thing is, uh, I don't know, they, they have so much money tied up. I mean, it's almost like a sunk loss at this point because they have millions and billions of dollars tied up in from loans to Venezuela and assistance and all that stuff. Of course, they they would like to keep their investment going and not have a have that as a loss. If you know, I, again, I don't know if some you know U.S. Trump officials' wet dream comes true and they topple <laughs> Maduro or whatever, and they get some who, who's that one Guaido or whatever that guy mm-hmm. is. Yeah, yeah, whoever that Guaido guy is, get him in power, then all the Russian debt will be canceled. You know, who knows what what that is? But I think a lot of it is you know for specific strategic things and also just historical lines that they just want to maintain. Yeah. You know? And so what's, what are you working on now? What are you looking at into Russia? Can you talk about anything right now? Yeah, so more obviously more MH17 work like always. Um, we've been looking into um, a handful of – so the New York Times dropped a really, really big – I mentioned this earlier – a really big story recently about this guy, Andrei um, Averyanov, who is in charge of this like GRU unit who's been doing all sorts of nasty things in Europe. and Not just Europe, Central Asia, the Middle East, um, the Caucasus. Everyone focuses on the Europe, EU stuff, but mm-hmm. they've been doing you – know, they have stuff in Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and elsewhere. It's EU – just gets us the headlines because it's you know it's what you know we read about most often, um, but they've been doing stuff all over different Russian strategic locations, and so we've been looking more into this guy Avryanov, who's like the big boss, and some of his um, subordinates, and we found a few new people thanks to this New York Times investigation that was came out um, a couple weeks ago, a few new people to stalk online to figure out um, what they're doing. And also, this has given us some new clues about people, we, some old faces and some new details that let us keep on digging into them. But, yep, GRU hunting is what we've been doing mostly, looking to some of these guys, because they're very, very sloppy online. They Some of them are better than others, but for the most part, you can find a wedding or some college buddy who has a front photo of them in the background, because with the Russian internet, it's a wild, wild west of unethical research, because there's all these facial recognition tools that work with Russian social networks. None of these exist for Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But for Russian language, Russian platform, social networks, you have all these extremely creepy tools you can use to like do facial recognition and stuff that don't exist, thankfully, yet on Western social networks, which lets us do a lot of very powerful and, I guess, creepy <laughs> research. You know, let's say we have the passport photo of some GRU agent. We can use some of these sites. One's called Find Clone or Find Face. And then it'll look for this face in every, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of photos on this Russian social network called VK. And even if this guy's like in the background, an example, we found this one GRU guy. His daughter has an account on the site and she had like a photo of her on, on, for her birthday. And he, this GRU agent is in the background. His face is just barely illuminated by the candles and the cake. cake. But this facial recognition software is so powerful. It matched the face we uploaded on a passport photo to a like, very dark photo of him just you know barely illuminated by candlelight and even though this guy has no digital footprint he has no accounts he we can't find an email address he uses we can't you know he has no facebook account he has no instagram whatever but just happens that his college buddy a different photo of him from his college buddy and from his daughter shows him lets you know if you know what their daughter's name is we know his name because the patronymic of uh, someone is their father's name right plus the last name so we can figure out all the other information about them so yeah, so that's a very long-winded answer. But yeah, well, we're doing um, all sorts of G- uh, research into um, GRU agents right now. Well, it's funny because yeah, we're all a little bit scared of surveillance mm-hmm. and facial recognition technology. Oh, it's but, terrifying, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but actually, these are also the, the uh, these have been useful tools for you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably better that these things don't exist, but because they do exist, we might as well use them. Because yeah. <laughs> I know there's a million lawsuits and ethical issues around Facebook and their facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a Facebook account, maybe you've gotten this notification to where if a friend has uploaded a 
photograph with you in it, but you're not tagged, sometimes well, Facebook would be like, hey, do you want to tag yourself in this photo? We know it's you, you know, because Facebook has an extremely powerful facial recognition program built mm-hmm. in, but it's just not public facing, right? You're not able to like weaponize that, I guess, for, right. for research yet. Maybe someone, there's probably somebody on GitHub who has a script somewhere to where you could do it. But on the Russian internet, people don't have the same um, normal ethical and concerns around technology and development, so we can use those. Well, listen, this has been fascinating, yeah. and uh, I do really appreciate your time. I also think the work Ben and Kat's doing is amazing. I think no, more people should be aware. Yeah. I think it's some of the most interesting journalism out there right now. Like I say, at a time where it's very hard to find good journalism, I think in some ways the internet has destroyed parts of journalism <laughs> because content is free. I desperately try to avoid stuff like BuzzFeed because I think it's terrible. <laughs> so I think the work Bell and Cat's doing is amazing. I'll share it out and let people know. But if people want to follow your work specifically, mm-hmm. how can they follow you? Oh, and I'm easy to find. My name's Eric with an A, A-R-I-C, Toller, T-O-L-E-R. I think I'm the only person with that name. So I have... In the world. Bo- I, think, I think so. My, wow. I have a misspelled first name. So it's <laughs> it's good for like SEO, I guess, for extension optimization, but it's bad if I ever want to hide. So... Uh, uh, I'm very easy to find if you just Google my name. Yeah. Right, great. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I do want to say a big thank you to Eric for coming on the show. If you want to find out more about this and what we discussed, then please refer to the show notes on defiance.news. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange kraken puts the power in your hands to buy sell and trade bitcoin find out more at kraken.com which is k-r-a-k-e-n.com